Um, so we're going to be in Revelation chapter 21. It's where our, our teaching is going to come out of today. And if you're new to the scriptures, Revelation is the very last book. And so just start at the index in your back and work your way back a couple of pages. But as you turn to Revelation chapter 21, I want to ask you a question. And maybe kids can help with this. So kiddos, got a question for you. What's the way you love for stories to end? We're always hoping what's going to happen. We're always hoping for a what? We're always hoping for a happy ending. Curtis, you're not a kid, but you did great. That was, that was the answer I was going for. Yeah, whether, whether it's a children's book or whether it's a, a, a fiction book that we love to read or even just the story of our own lives, we, we want everything to be great at the end. We, we are always looking for happy endings. We're always hoping for happy endings. And if you think about what happy endings usually involve, it's usually something like the good team winning right? It's usually something like the lost thing being found or the lost person coming home. What are some other, what are, what are some other good happy ending things? The couple falls in love, usually on a bridge with Taylor Swift in the background, right? What else? What was it? Fireman Sam. Just period. If you look at the end of any book, turn the last page, there he is. It's good news. Happy ending, Fireman Sam. Yeah, we, we, love, we love those kind of things. Even in music, when dissonant chords are not resolved, we hate it. And so we love it when chords end in harmony. In other words, that the happy ending happens when everything is right. When relationships are restored, when tension is resolved, that feels like a happy ending. And, and the good news is that that is how the truest story in all the world ends, too. It's the story, it's the, the end we long for in every story, but this is how the Bible ends. And so, so today we're ending our seven-week walkthrough of the entire Bible, um, which if you haven't been with us, we've, we've, we've kind of walked through the entire Bible in six or seven acts, as we've called it. Uh, those are going to come up on the slide because I want to remind you of where we've been or catch you up if you haven't been here. So the first act of the Bible we called creation. We didn't call it creation. God called it creation um, because it's when everything was created and everything was good and right and God was the main character and everything else supported him as the main character. And that lasted, as we know, for about a page and a half of our Bibles. And Act 2 comes into play when we decide we wanted to be the main character. And so we rebelled against God. Adam and Eve uh, believed the lies of Satan and rebelled against God and decided that their way was better, that they didn't need God. But God, in His goodness, continued to carry forward His mission. In fact, some of the things that God said through his Old Testament, through his Old Covenant people Israel was, you shall be my people and I will be your God. So in, in, in Eden, in the first act of creation, he made a place where there was no sickness, no sadness, no tears, no division, anything like that. That fell away. And then God continued to call his people back to him in this third act of the story that we call covenant or promise. He continued to carry out his promise and try to pull them back and invite them in and say, I will be your God if you will be my people. And that goes on for a few thousand years. Uh, and then the next act of the story is called redemption. It's when Jesus came to earth and he lived a perfect life and he died a sacrificial death and he rose not just as a, as a promise for us, but he, he rose to initiate a new kingdom that then exists in the next act. 
And this is where we fit in the story. The, the, the sixth act of the story is called church. This is us. This is God's mission continuing. You see the icon there. We're continuing to move forward in history as God's plan continues to, to un, un, unfold. I was about to say unravel. That's what it feels like sometimes. Um, God's plan continues to unfold and does so through his people, his broken people, his sinful people that he continues to invite back and say, no, 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 I'm, I'll still be your God if you'll be my people. And I'm a better God and I'm a, I'm a better storyteller and I'm still the main character. And so that's where we've been. This is where we are in the story of God. This is where we fit, okay? This is the New Testament and then all of history since while we're waiting for this final chapter. And so the last act of the story of God is called restoration. The last act is a future act of the story. It's called restoration. But when many followers of Jesus or folks who don't know Jesus but have seen seeing the scriptures or assume they know what we believe. When folks think of the end of the Bible or the end of life or eternity, what doesn't always come to mind is that everything is right and relationships are restored or that tension is resolved. Like that's not the happy ending that we necessarily attribute to the end of life as we know it. Rather, if you've seen cartoons or comics or stereotypes or this kind of stuff, what people picture when they see the end of the Bible or the end times or the end of, uh, the, the end of, the end of our lives is, is clouds, like some weird cloud planet with pearly gates you have to get into. And we're all angels with little harps um, and questionable amounts of clothing sitting and singing songs for the rest of eternity. That's what gets labeled as heaven. And it's kind of this escape from the world. Even songs are written about this. All fly away, O glory. One day I'll fly away. That's not, church, what the Bible teaches will happen at the end of the Bible, the end of time or eternity. If, if that were true, then the last icon would be an arrow pointing up. And maybe this is what we think of is like, we get to go somewhere. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches. Rather, it's about a king returning to fully sit on his throne and claim his kingdom. It's about Jesus coming back and not coming back so that there's another up there. He's going to come back just like he did in the first act. He's going to come back here to remake the earth, what God intended it to be, and where we'll get to dwell with him on a, a restored version of this earth forever and ever and ever. The end of the story isn't that we go but rather that God comes. And so our goal tonight is, is simply to rightly understand the end of the Bible, the end of life, eternity. No, no small feat for the next 30 minutes. Um, but also to see how that right understanding gives us a better hope for our future, but also shapes our everyday life in the present. So that's where I hope God will lead us. Would you pray with me that God would teach us in that way? God, we need you. There's so much misunderstanding and confusion and debates, some of it silly around end times things and around what's going to happen as if any of us could navigate it and figure it out. So Father, we need you to teach us. Help us major on the majors in this aspect. Help us to, to put our, our hope in you and see the good news of your future return, not just as a future hope, but a present hope as well. Would you be good to us and lead us in that way? Would you be our teacher tonight, Spirit? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so again, our goal is to rightly understand the end of the Bible, the end of life, eternity, and to see how that understanding 
gives us a better hope for our future and shapes our everyday life in the present. To start, though, we have to acknowledge like there's pictures of hope and there's pictures of eternity laced throughout the entire scriptures. And really, since Genesis 3, when, 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 when rebellion started, God has been inviting his people back. And so throughout the Old Testament with God's people Israel, you saw them hoping in a coming Messiah. The apostles hoped that Jesus would be the one. They declared him to be the one. Many references through the New Testament and through the letters look to a future hope, a return of Jesus. And so this hope, the theme of hope, the theme of something coming in the future is laced throughout the scriptures. But the most clear picture of eternity and and, and the most clear picture of what it looks like is in Revelation 21 and 22. It's the, the last two chapters in the last book of our scriptures. And Revelation, if you've never tried to read it, it is a downright confusing book. We're not going to dive fully into every nuance of Revelation today, but it was written by the Apostle John, same guy who wrote one of the gospel accounts and wrote a couple of uh, New Testament letters. And toward the end of John's life, when he was exiled on an island, God brought him into this kind of dream or trance, and, and he believed the Spirit gave him a picture of what eternity will look like. God showed him a vision of a fully restored heavens and earth, free from so much of what we experienced, free, frankly, from so much of what we just prayed and lamented against, free from pain, free from suffering, free from evil and death. So read with me in Revelation 21. I'm going to read the first five verses, and they're going to be on the screen as well. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. The invitation God gave his old covenant people, his new covenant people, will finally come true. You will be my people, I will be your God. And God will will be with them. God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or grieving, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And so the old world in John's description, which for the record is the only world that we can envision, all the brokenness around us, everything that we see, everything that we experience, that world will pass away and will give way to this new world one that's really hard for us to wrap our minds around. But again, and and this is where it's commonly misunderstood, this world, the world that we're in right now, will not be replaced. Rather, it's going to be restored. When when John talks about the world passing away, it's, it's all the things of the earth passing away. And then 
there's going to be a full embodiment of God's original intention on this earth. We don't leave the world as disembodied souls and arrive at some new cloud planet where we receive angel wings and a harp, serenely sitting and singing forever. That's not the picture of eternity. And that wouldn't make sense in the flow of the story that we saw a moment ago. Way back in Act 1, not, not Acts chapter 1, but, but Act 1, the first chapter of our story in Genesis, we saw God create this earth for His glory. We saw that for a couple of chapters, everything worked together for God's purpose, and, and that Adam and Eve, humanity, cultivated and enjoyed creation and cooperated with God in His work. We got just a glimpse in Genesis 1 and 2 of the world as it should be. And it was a world with no tears and no division and no pain and no brokenness and no death and no mourning and no grieving. And so now here we are in the last two chapters of the Bible. And what does God promise to recreate one day? That same world where there is similarly no tears or division or pain or brokenness or death or mourning or grieving. And so we need to hear this. God is not going to destroy the earth and pull us out just before it explodes like the Death Star scene in Star Wars or whatever your favorite movie is. Rather, he's going to restore the world and recreate everything to the way that it was originally designed to work. And so when Jesus says from the throne in Revelation 21, I'm making all things new, he's talking about there being a renewed peace and a renewed harmony and a renewed, the Hebrew word is shalom, which gets translated peace, like the absence of war, but but in honesty, it's the overarching goodness and fulfillment and everything working together. That's what the end of times looks like. God's not going to destroy the world. In fact, destruction at the end of the Bible is reserved for Satan, who entered the world in Genesis 3 and caused the rebellion. Destruction's reserved for Satan and, and for the evil and brokenness and sin he introduced into the story. And it's reserved for those who believe Satan's lie and to continue to pursue by their own volition independence and oppose the true main character of this story. Destruction is only for those who refuse to trust in a better story and live in life of that better story. But for everyone else, and this is truly an invitation open for anyone, for everyone else, the promise at the end of the Bible is that first, our broken relationship with God, it'll be fixed. And our broken relationship with people, they'll be fixed. Our broken relationship with creation and society around us, it will be fixed. Our broken hearts will be fixed. Our broken minds will be fixed. Our broken bodies will be fixed. The ways that have wrongly defined justice and sexuality and division and and the physical environment, all of those things will be fixed. Even our misplaced reliance and hope and pursuits of pleasure, those things will be fixed. And nations won't fall. And we won't have to be figuring out 
how to evacuate tons of folks who are trying to get out right now, or what place we even have thousands of miles away in that process and confusion. And pandemics won't exist, and all the dominoes and division that have fallen from that, and racial injustice won't exist, and worry and anxiety and depression and guilt and shame will not be allowed, and bodies and brains will not shut down, and division and disunity and disdain and injustice and death itself, church, will have no place. And there will be 0.000% evil or sadness or brokenness ever again. And anyone who would consider themselves in Christ will inhabit this perfect version of this world such that we've never seen why it sounds so unfathomable because we can't picture a world like that maybe you have just just really beautiful moments every now and then where where it's like a, a little bit of the veil gets pulled back but then immediately it snaps back together we can't picture a world like this it's this world but full of goodness and full of unity and full of of, of a purpose that we cannot imagine that is good news. But more than any of those benefits, more than any of those promises, you know what it is that makes the new heavens and earth, this renewed heavens and earth, perfect and good? It's the full presence of God. That is what makes everything right. He is what brings in that utter shalom, the all-encompassing goodness. He is the best good news. And so, so hear me on this. If you take nothing else out of today than this, hear this. At the end of the Bible, everything in creation will be restored to the way that God designed it to be back at the start of the Bible. But more than that, the truest story in the world has the happiest of endings of any story that's ever been told because for eternity, this world will be inhabited by the very presence of God. And anyone who believes in him will get to walk with God like Adam and Eve did as all of creation enjoys living in harmony and under God's rule, the rule and reign of a good and perfect King Jesus. That was really long, so I want to say it again, because it matters at the end of seven weeks here. At the end of the Bible, the end of time for eternity, everything in all creation will be restored to the way that God designed it to be at the start of the Bible, at the start of time. But more than that, the truest story in the world has the happiest of endings because for all of eternity, this world will be inhabited by the presence of God and we will walk with God like Adam and Eve did as all of creation lives in perfect harmony and enjoys the rule and reign of our good King Jesus. 
That's how this story ends. And there's plenty of debate out there about what specifics are going to happen and how it's all going to work out. Is Revelation literal or symbolic? Which pieces are, are literal? Which pieces are symbolic? When will it happen? Have some of it already happened? Is there a rapture or not? No. Is left behind real? Also no. Um, but however it plays out, when, not if, our current act of the story gives way to this final act, when church culminates into restoration, Orthodox theology, for all of its debate, has said there's three things that are going to happen. And so we can cling to these. Number one, Jesus will return. The King will come. Two, there will be a bodily resurrection. Jesus didn't go float off in a soul-spirit thing. His body rose from the grave. So will ours. People in Christ will rise to a renewed creation. Others will rise to an eternal death. And the third thing that Orthodox Christians have believed throughout the centuries is that, that distinction, rising to new life or rising to death, is based on every human giving an account of our life to Jesus, who is a good king and righteous judge, and also the one who promises that everything can be washed away and all new life can be ours. Those are the big three things that Orthodox followers of Jesus can agree on. Other than that, through Revelation, there's lots of controversy. Um, as, as some of you know, we've been kind of using a, a, a book to help shape this teaching series, and the authors uh, share this quote to help us kind of cut through all the, all the details and focus on the big picture of Revelation. So it's going to be up on the screen here, but Mike Goheen and Craig Bartholomew say this. They say, though the labor pains of the end times are fascinated, fascinating, and some of you think they're fascinating. They're, I mean, there's all, all sorts of conspiracies and blog sites and this kind of stuff that just fascinate people. Um, so for some people, at least, they are fascinating. Though the labor pangs of the end times are fascinating, God's focus at the end of the Bible is rather on the proverbial baby that comes after those pains. There is a new world, a renewed world waiting to be born. And they continue, God's ultimate intention is for what was once created good to be utterly restored. Yes, that's true of your individual soul, but it's also true because the whole cosmos will once again live and thrive under the rule of its rightful king. The whole Bible, they claim, tells the story of God's progressive march toward this final cosmic restoration. Full and final restoration church is coming. That is a brief but right understanding of what's going to happen at the end of the Bible, the end of our lives for eternity. But we also glimpse restoration through the rest of his story. We can be bringers of restoration now. We can foretell what's going to come every day of our lives. And so I want to turn us in our conversation and, and, and think about asking the question, how does restoration, 
how does a right understanding of the end of the Bible impact us now? How is it not just something to be like, okay, that's a cool fact. We'll eventually see that maybe one day. And the answer is that because of God's promised end, there is a better hope for our future and also a better shape for our everyday lives in the present. I just want to pause and just, just have a little bit of a conversation. I'm curious to know how you would answer that question. How does the truth of the future hit you? How, how does a vision of eternity, that vision of eternity, how does that shape our everyday lives? Anything come to mind? Why does what happens at the end of the scriptures matter to our lives today? Yeah, how so? It gives purpose to the things we do now. Yeah. Learning about God and each other that, you know, one day there'll be the fulfillment of all of that, the new creation. Yeah, yeah, we're we're working toward a fulfillment that that is here. It's not all this stuff just happens and then we hit the eject button and start over. That's a that's great. What else? How does what will happen matter today, impact us today? Yeah, I love that. Knowing, knowing that this isn't going to be destroyed, <clears throat> but rather renewed, it, it helps us have purpose to care for things and people and creation. Yeah. And when we do, we're, we're telling that story of what's coming. I love that. What else? Yeah, it deepens our communion with God when we're joining to His purpose. So the, the random things throughout the day don't have to be as random or meaningless. There's something, something that we can display and declare in them. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. One more? Yeah. Yeah, it helps lift our eyes above what we can see. Yeah. And not only if it doesn't, if, if, if the thing we put our hope in doesn't work out, the side we don't like to talk about as much is like, oh, what if, what if that thing does come through for me? And then how quickly are we to be like, oh, but it only lasted for five minutes or, well, that's great. But now, now I want something even more, something even better. I got to that. Now what's next? Yeah. And we could go on and on around this. I want to, I want to dive into a couple of them that were mentioned because I had, I had some, some similar thoughts and then praying through and thinking of where we are as salt and light. Um, this week. Um, I think there's three, three different ways um, among some of what you said, and there's plenty of others, but three specific ways that I wanted to kind of draw us in um, to see how our future hope impacts our present life now. And, and they are, first, we get to be a people of hope in a hurting world now. So that echoes a little bit of, of some of what y'all have said. Second, we, we're part of God's kingdom unfolding now. And third, we live by the power of our eternal king now. So again, we can talk about the future all day long, but the future matters now. Here, here's what I mean by that. First, um, there's, there's nothing that's been more proven in my mind since about March 16th of 2020 than that people are desperate to put their hope in something. Is that fair? I don't think we have to debate that. Like everyone is desperate to put their hope in something. Everybody's going, it's got to be better than this. And so 
we will put our hope in anything that offers a, a, a glimpse of something potentially better. And so people have found their hopes in politics, and people have found their hopes in like-minded people, and people have found their hope in being against other people, and people have found their hope in money and medicine and technology. And again, anything or anyone who possibly offers a glimpse of something better, people will be like, yeah, that's where my hope is now. Nicole, when she taught last week, reminded us that our role during the second to last act of the story, New Testament into current history, that the role of God's people is to display and declare the kingdom of God. And that's not just some empty and sad duty. It's not just something we have to go do. Why, why is our role to display and declare the kingdom of God? It's because we have the truest source of hope. It's because Everyone around us is hurting and in need, and we have something that if we actually believe is true, then we believe it matters for them and will answer their questions better than whatever they're putting their hope in. Every other source of hope is empty and hypothetical. Hope says maybe, one, maybe this will work out, and then we all know, no matter what our faith claims to be, we all know what happens when we put that faith in that other thing or person? It lets us down. Maybe it'll work out. Ah, oh, it didn't. We'll try again. We'll try something else. Maybe that'll work out. Ah, oh, it didn't work out either. The end of the Bible gives us a promise that informs our present hope. And we've seen throughout the story, even in some that we don't like, but God keeps every single promise. And so our hope Salt and light, our hope is certain. Our hope is not hypothetical. And so our questions as we go about daily life are, one, how, how do I live as a person of hope as I enter into the division and the injustice and the politics and, and the everything that people try to put their hope in? Not as I avoid or run from those things. How, how, do, I, how do I enter into those things as a person of hope with a better answer, if I, if I believe this is true, I'm in my integrity to say, I believe I have a better answer. How do I enter in with a better answer and also the posture of Jesus? One of hum humility and meeting people where they are. In other words, as a person of hope, how does Jesus and his good news apply to and answer every cultural issue and need around us? And concurrently, what does it look like for me, for you, as a person of hope, to live out that hope in the everyday, even mundane stuff of your life? Actually, I love that you said, like, it, re it redefines your goals with your kids. It gives you something more than what other people put their hope in. It redefines success. It redefines our goal of why we're at work, whatever work looks like, or, or home, or, or time, or money. How does the gospel apply to the, the normal stuff of everyday life if who we are is a person of hope, is people of hope? And so that's the first way that the Bible, the end of the Bible, shapes our life today. We are people of hope now. Not just then. We're a people of hope now. The second way is related. We are part of God's kingdom unfolding now. God's kingdom is not just going to show up one day. We're part of God's kingdom unfolding now. In, in Jesus' Lord's Prayer, he prayed, 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, Lord. Where? On earth as it is in the heavens. On earth as it is in the heavens. And so I want to make a bold claim, but I think it fits in the story that we've been looking at for the last seven weeks. There is literally no area of your current life that is off limits to display and, and declare the kingdom of God. Can I say that again? There's, there's no area of life that is off limits for you to display or declare the kingdom of God. So, so here's what I mean. If every relationship will be restored one day, then we get to display and declare the kingdom of God now as we forgive others who have sinned against us and as we f- seek forgiveness with others now. If everything will one day exist in perfect harmony forever, then we get to display and declare the kingdom of God now as we pursue righteousness and holiness for ourselves and for others. If all creation will one day be redeemed, then we get to display and declare the kingdom of God now as we care for the earth and for society around us now. When Jesus walked the earth, for three years, 2,000 years ago, he described the kingdom of God by saying it's not going to come all at once. Rather, it starts small and it grows as Jesus and then his followers plant seeds and then water the seeds and then as God causes growth to happen. He said the kingdom of God is not going to come with irresistible power. Jesus doesn't come as a ruthless dictator forcing people into the kingdom. Rather, all people get to choose whether to enter a better kingdom and a better story, but the life we live and the interactions we have display and declare why God's is a better story, why God's is a better kingdom. And finally, Jesus described the kingdom by by saying that the full arrival of that kingdom is going to be delayed that God is is patient and didn't usher in the kingdom 2,000 years ago because he wants as many people to enter his kingdom as possible. And so we live in this weird, already not yet tension where Jesus is king and he rose to be our king and yet the kingdom is not here in full because Jesus is inviting anyone who will to come be part of that better story and that better kingdom that will last forever, but it changes everything about our lives today. These are the pictures of the kingdom that that shape our lives. These are the pictures of the kingdom that, that show us our role as God's kingdom slowly unfolds through through you, through God's church, through us together. It's not gonna come in in mighty power as the world would define it. It's going to come in slow and small. We're part of that unfolding in this already not yet season of time. Let me say it another way. The Bible says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And all I'm saying, salt and light, is we don't have to wait to start to live as if that is true. We don't have to wait to start obeying Jesus. We don't have to wait to declare him as our Lord. We get to live as if Jesus is Lord now, in every moment, in every relationship, in every career decision, in every 
argument with a spouse or roommate, in every conversation with a child or parent or brother or sister, in every conversation we get into, we get to display and declare to a watching world an image of a better kingdom and a better hope of our better King Jesus. And I want to close with a final way that the end of the Bible gives us hope for today and shapes our everyday life. And that's this. We live by the power of our eternal king now. That's a heavy charge that God gives us. But you know what? He also gives us the ability to live it out. See, Jesus promises the renewal of all things, full and forever at the end of time, But if we are a people of hope now, and if we are part of God's kingdom unfolding now, then the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the very spirit of the living God is alive and working in you now. It's Christ in us, the New Testament tells us, that is our only hope of glory. And so any any different motivation that looks silly to the rest of the world or any restored relationship, or any glimpse of eternity, or any hope in a hard moment like the things we lamented and prayed over earlier, or any grace that you want to show someone when you've been wronged, or any entry into each other's lives and problems and injustice, or just frankly any fruit of the Spirit, all those things have to come from the Spirit. We have a mission and a role in a really hard world that will one day be restored, but it's not restored yet. And we have a better hope, but we also have a better ability to live out those things and live out those roles and be reminded of those hope that we can't conjure up on our own. But we're empowered by something that is beyond ourselves. And that is the hope that we hold to every time we participate in communion. And so if you want to grab your your little single-size cup thing for anyone who's in Jesus, and if you're not, just observe, because what we're about to do is is to remember Jesus' first coming and to remind each other of the hope and promise of His second coming. But we're also through the, the juice and the wafer, through the bread and the wine, through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, we're going to declare our reliance on Jesus and his spirit during that time between his first and his second coming. And so up on the screen is going to come a short responsive reading. And this is how we're going to wrap up today. These are the last two verses of the entire Bible. And they speak to both this future hope in Jesus and also the present indwelling of his spirit. And so as you take the wafer, as you take the bread... I want to remind you that John, who wrote the book of Revelation, says that Jesus, whose body was broken for you and who is the fulfillment of hope and who is the promised one who will return, Jesus testifies to this future restored, sorry, Jesus testifies to this restored future saying, surely I am coming soon. And so will you say this out loud with me as we declare together our shared hope in Jesus before we take the bread? If we believe that, we say, amen, come Lord Jesus, take and eat the bread. The body of Christ broken for you.
And John also reminds us of our need for Jesus to be not just for us as we go about his will and displaying and declaring the kingdom, but John reminds us of our need for Jesus to be with us and in us now. And his blood shed for you and for the forgiveness of sins reminds us that you've been washed clean and you've been brought into his kingdom and you've been filled with his spirit. And so I would love for us to say these, the very last words in our scriptures over each other is kind of a blessing to remind each other of God's presence. Until Jesus returns, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Take and drink the blood of Christ shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Father God, Lord Jesus, Spirit of the living God, thank you that your story is true. It's been a lot this summer and we've barely scratched the surface, but I thank you that that at the end of the day, you are the main character. And though we try to usurp your throne and though we try to live our lives by other stories, even some of us know that they're false and fading stories that are going to let us down, we still, we still try. We still try to live by any other story. I thank you that you are still the one who calls us back. I thank you that your invitation has been true from Genesis 3 through the end of Revelation. If you will be my people, I will be your God. And Father, we thank you that you're a better God and a better place to put our hope. And we thank you that your story is better. We thank you that your lordship is better. We thank you that your kingdom is better than anything else that we've ever experienced. You are our God. Help us to be your people. In your son's name, amen.